the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. You've got to constantly build your toolkit and you can't really think in more than about three or four year increments because your your mind has been trained in those increments from high school and college and law school. And you're used to seeing those time frames. So if you can take each of those time frames and try to make yourself the best lawyer you can be at the end of that time frame, then you can keep your eyes and ears open for what comes next. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Oh, Tyson, I'm really excited about today's show. We have one of my longtime mentors, a real hero of mine, someone that I've known since law school. You know, I told the story the other day, I was on Law Journal with Pete, and when when you're a Law Journal staff member, you resent the hell out of the editor-in-chief and the rest of the people on the board because they're giving you all this work to do. And then then I became the editor-in-chief, and then I resented all the people who were on Law Journal underneath us because they were lazy and not doing any work. So Pete and I have an interesting history together. Uh, after law school, um, Pete was working at one of the big firms in town, and I was working for a crazy man who wanted to file a lawsuit against the comic book manufacturer for um, allegedly taking the uh, personality and the publicity rights for a uh, local hockey player. And Pete ended up defending that lawsuit, and he was working on that lawsuit long after I was gone from the crazy attorney. So. And then, and then later on, Pete and I met up when we were both thinking about starting our firms through our friend, Wendy Warner. So we've been together for a long time. We've seen each other uh, succeed and, and fail, and, and it's just been a great friendship. So Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Tyson. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I echo what uh, Jim said about our tortured history. I At the conference a couple weeks ago, I was inundated and reminded over and over again about the importance of systems. And it recalled my days on the Law Journal when we had no systems, really. But we had Imani, uh, Jim's wife, who uh, was key to getting the uh, issues out. And somehow that all kind of came full circle when I was hearing all the the stuff about the importance of systems and knowing what you do well and what you don't do well. Um, So, yeah, Jim, it's great to kind of circle all the way back with you. So, Jim, I don't think you said Pete's last name. Um, Pete, it's, it's Pete Salsic. It's not Salsich, right? It's Salsic. That's correct. You ate some salt and got sick. 
you know, it's funny. So I, I love, I told you at the conference, I loved your dad. He was one of my professors and for the, forever, I've always thought it was sausage until you and I talked at the conference. And so I always said, Oh, I love Pete sausage. And so he's, uh, anyways, your father was a professor, loved him. I told you that before he, he's great. Um, I want to ask you something before my, before my real first question, you, sure. made, you put something in your email yesterday that you're going to be singing this morning. And so your voice is going to be ready. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so I, uh, I, play my one of the reasons that I do the work that I do is because I'm really a sort of below average musician and singer uh, and an occasionally once in a while successful illustrator um, and I never really made a living doing those creative proceedings so when I finally was able to get my law focus back around to creatives um, I finally realized I could bring value to people who could make a living being creative. And in that sense, I still to this day play music in different local bands and uh, figured I'd just do warm up by singing a little uh, Neil Young to get things going this morning. So it's sort of how I Super. start my day, walking around and annoying my family. I love it. I love it. It's pretty, pretty much the same thing that Jim does, only he has no musical talent. So that's, that's perfect. <laughs> so... That, talk about your story. How did you get to where you are now? Who, where do you work? And tell us more. Of, Jim sort of teased a little bit, but talk more about that journey. There's a couple ways I can characterize my journey. And the biggest one is that there was no charted path. I got really good advice when I was a very young lawyer. Uh, and I, I was a very young lawyer in my early 30s because part of my path included, as you referenced, my dad, the law professor. Uh, I was absolutely going to go to law school when I got out of college until I decided that the only thing I knew for certain when I got out of college was that I was not going to go to law school. So I put it off for about seven years. Uh, I had a restaurant business with a friend, was an illustrator, sold playground equipment, basically did a bunch of stuff to put off law school. So then when I got started, I was in kind of a hurry. And I got really good advice from a uh, guy that I started with in Denver, DJ Poifair, years ago. And he just said, you've got to constantly build your toolkit. And you can't really think in more than about three or four year increments because your your mind has been trained in those increments from high school and college and law school. And you're used to seeing those time frames. So if you can take each of those time frames and try to make yourself the best lawyer you can be at the end of that time frame, then you can keep your eyes and ears open for what comes next. And so keep adding to your toolkit. If you haven't done this, try to do it. If you, ha you know, whatever it is that you feel like you're lacking, try to build that experience so that you can keep your eyes and ears open. Um, and of course, about three years into that stint, uh, my mother got sick here in St. Louis. We, my wife and I moved back to St. Louis from Denver. And um, I met a guy named Mike Kahn, who has been a, probably the biggest mentor in my career. Um, at a firm called Stinson, Mag, and Fizel in St. Louis. It's now Stinson, Leonard Street, I think. But we, he had a little case, um, said it might be interesting. It was a comic book case. It's the one Jim mentioned. And he said, it's probably a First Amendment summary judgment thing, but if you're interested in working on it, we could probably knock it out. Well, that ended up being about 10 years of litigation uh, over right of publicity um, we, we really rewrote the right of publicity law on a national basis because we created a massive split among the courts that had ruled on it. Um, we went to the Missouri Supreme Court. We had two four-week jury trials. We went to the U.S. Supreme Court on a cert petition, lots and lots of law journal articles. And by the end of that, and all of this was in a large law firm setting, 
Um, but by the end of that, I was a comic book lawyer. I had tried cases against uh, recording companies on behalf of artists. We had done um, a lot of different work in sort of this entertainment creative space. And it became, began to be clear to me that there was one thing that all these cases had in common, um, aside just the lawyers making money, and that was that there was not a piece of paper at the outset. There was not a piece of paper before there was money. Um, and, and always that piece of paper would have probably needed to have about two paragraphs. And if it was there, everybody would have looked at it and said, yeah, I agree. That's correct. They would have signed it. And there never would have been a lawsuit. And so little by little, you know, when you, when you, when you try, when, when the cases that you try are only, you know, sort of long, large civil cases, they almost always settle. And so you end up drafting lots of contracts as a, as a litigator because you're, and you really are a negotiator because almost the entire time in that litigation, you're, you're functionally positioning your client to end up with a better deal than they might think they have at the start. And so you sort of became a transactional lawyer in the process of being an IP litigator. And I just found that that was something I enjoyed much more than the fight itself. Um, certainly get ramped up when the fight's going on and I, you know, love to engage in it. But the most satisfaction came from getting a good resolution that we could control rather than leave in the hands of a jury or a judge. And all of that was happening at uh, Blackwell Sanders, large firm in St. Louis and Kansas City that in the mid 2000s was really uh, innovative for a large law firm. They had a really uh, robust um, mentorship program for the young attorneys and a very, very clear statement. You knew from day one sort of what was expected of you to move to year two and year three. Um, and I got involved and I ran the summer program there for five years and was in charge of you know, 15 summer associates and all of those programs. And I really enjoyed that part of the process um, because it made me a better lawyer as I began to move into the category of someone who could mentor young lawyers. And I would have probably still been in a tall building had uh, there not been a merger um, a couple years later with Hush and Effenberger. And I don't, you know, the firms merge for good reasons, bad reasons, no reasons, but they thought it was a good reason at the time. The outcome for me, though, was that conflicts, essentially new conflicts because of the merger, drove away most of the work that the Blackwell had supported me in building up in a, in a, um, in sort of a soft IP area. The Blackwell sent me to Seattle to learn uh, software licensing and blogging law, of all things, and sent one of my partners to speak at Comic-Con on character copyrights. And another guy went to South by Southwest and was putting on music festivals. They encouraged this group of young IP litigators to really grow our practices in these emerging areas. And about two years later, we were all that was put on a dead stop because of the merger and uh, conflicts were driving away all of our work. And all of us left over a period of about a year and a half, um, this group of five of us. And I um, after looking around at other law firms, um, called my friend Wendy Werner, who told me that Jim Hacking and others were thinking about the same thing. And uh, we sat down at Wendy's office one day, and the outcome of some of those meetings was me and one other guy jumping out of a tall building and becoming two guys behind a restaurant uh, and starting a firm called the Brick House Law Group. And this was back in 2009, and we were um, convinced then that we could 
attract the same type of work that was coming to us as a large law firm because we were the same lawyers. We invested in ProLaw, which was, you know, a great big clunky but pretty robust software program at the time, thinking that's what we needed. We needed to manage massive numbers of documents to do the same type of litigation. Um, and we focused on uh, entertainment IP litigation. What we found is that the, all the our friends in the big firms weren't quite as interested in uh, sending us conflicted work. And we would talk to a lot of people and they would say, yeah, you guys are great, but I need to cover myself with the board. And if I hire Brian Cave uh, and something goes bad, at least I won't be blamed for my hiring decision. So pretty quickly, we realized that we were going to have to become you know, for lack of a better term, street lawyers. We I'd spent my entire career to that point um, looking, you know, down on the street from the 27th floor and practicing in great big conference rooms and with big teams and sort of thought that's what the law practice was like. And then realized very quickly that the overwhelming majority of lawyers do just the opposite. Um, and it took a while to learn that process. And Jim and others were kind of instrumental in helping us really get out of our own way and begin to think differently. Um, and we made a big decision. We were struggling. We, we teamed up with somebody. We got, we, we were, you know, staff on cases for friends. We did whatever we could to keep the doors open, as you guys know. Um, but one day we, we just finally had, with some help with some others who were helping us think about it, we, we, we realized that we need to just do one thing, and that's IP and entertainment. We were not going to do appeals. We were not going to do any of the other type of work that we were taking in. And we began to seek out people as a, to build a referral network. So once a week, we would find a local St. Louis law firm that was a small firm that maybe did a certain type of corporate work or just something, state planning, things that we didn't do, but we felt like we needed to be able to make good referrals if people asked us. And we would look them up, you know, make sure they didn't do what we did. And send an email or call and say, hey, we'd like to meet you. Can we come take you to lunch and hear about your practice? We're trying to build an outbound referral network for what we do. And that had was, was really transformative because we realized that if we worked first to give work away, um, of course, in those conversations, we got to tell them what we did. And every once in a while, that work would come back to us. Um, and so we, we had a nice little run of success at, at Brickhouse, one of our highest profile cases was representing Victor Whitmill, uh, who was the tattoo artist who um, put the tattoo on Mike Tyson, the boxer's face. And when the uh, Warner Brothers and the Hangover 2 movie decided to copy that same tattoo onto Ed Helms's face in the opening scene, uh, we recognized that as copyright infringement. And we sued Warner Brothers and had a great run um, with a preliminary injunction hearing. The, day before the movie was set to open on Memorial Day weekend um, and and had a lot of, you know, had a nice, ultimately got a, a settlement that was um, certainly very uh, important for our client and, and got some nice rulings from the court along the way and, and really developed sort of a, uh, a reputation for being able to take on those high profile entertainment cases. Um, but I was really still gravitated towards the transactional work. And I had a, um, a small client at the time called Coolfire. It was just making, um, they were they were a commercial production house, basically making commercials for advertising agencies. And I'd, we'd gotten to know them right about the time I was going into, cool, uh, going into Brickhouse. 
And one day their founder came over to our office and said, hey, I, I think I want to start a TV company. And I, I maybe some, make some apps too. We've got this talent, people moving back to town. We want to do some of this new stuff. Um, this is 2010. And uh, so we said, sure. So we helped them figure out what IP they had in one company and to move into the other. And little by little started doing, writing their contracts. You know, if we had to get talent tied up for a television show, we had to figure out what that contract looked like. It wasn't, there weren't free contracts all over the internet to, to copy. Um, so we learned just to write down the words that we thought needed to be there. And, you know, it's a nice surprise when you get the contract back from an LA attorney and it wasn't all marked up. It was, it was the right type of contract. And again, we learned the lesson that, you know, if your contracts just say the words that you intend to say, they could be pretty good. Little by little, that grew and grew uh, until uh, 2013 when I had spent about six months in a row not working on any other client. Um, our retainers were uh, through the roof with, with Full Fire, and yet we were working at 50 cents on the dollar. Um, and I hadn't done any business development in nine months. Uh, and they needed an in-house counsel. And they were either going to hire somebody whose job was to fire me, uh, or I could take the job. So I, I headed up the search committee. I pulled a little Dick Cheney. And after about a month, I nominated myself and uh, went in-house in May of 2013 and spent the next uh, five and a half years as in-house counsel for a group of companies that does, that, as I said, did television, um, digital entertainment, commercial, software development, um, spun off a couple of companies in the process and learned the... Uh, the art of uh, being a startup lawyer and all of the transactional work and equity raising and corporate governance that goes into that. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, as one of the software companies in that family um, took on a significant uh, VC investment um, and decided as part of that to move the legal work to their large law firm. Um, I still retained the work for part of the company, but it was no longer enough to be full-time in-house. And I came out back into the private practice world in the last year, um, but not wanting to be that litigator that I once was. I wanted to do the type of work I'd spent the last six years really honing. Um, and one of the conversations I had was with Jim Hacking a few months ago. And Jim, in his wisdom, just sat me down and said, well, you know, what do you do? And I told him that there was a saying that Cool Fire used to have that said, we make things for screen. And he said, well, you're a screen lawyer. You, you do the deals that end up on screens. And he was right. So, you know, in typical me fashion, I didn't do it right away. Jim told me to go get the URL that night. I waited about six months. Um, but luckily, nobody else had the idea in between. And uh, I have started to mold my practice now um, as a screen lawyer. And I rejoined my old partner, Mike Kahn, uh, late last year. We practiced at a firm called Capes Sokol here in St. Louis. It's about a 30-ish lawyer firm that um, has been around for about 20 years. It's got an excellent reputation, do a lot of work, good litigation practice and uh, tax and estate planning and real estate. But they really didn't have much of a, nothing in the area that I did. My old partner was doing uh, intellectual property, but still from a litigation standpoint. And so they were interested in me sort of joining him and growing a more robust transactional entertainment and IT practice. And that's what I've been doing for about the past six months or so. And that, that it pretty much brings me up to date. That's awesome, Pete. So right now, 
where are your clients coming from? I, they, they kind of fall into two batches and maybe a third that is beginning to grow. And, and, and one of my biggest struggles in this process is try to try to answer that question that you just asked, Jim. There's a certain percentage that I just have known over the years, gotten to know when I was just Cool Fires Council. I was able to participate with um, some of the, uh, the, the St. Louis-based startup accelerators. Uh, one in particular, I spent a lot of time with called Stadia Ventures. And it's a startup accelerator um, where the only common denominator among the, the cohort companies is they have something to do with sports or sports technology. And in that, in those processes, I got to know a lot of people, both in the creative um, industry here in town and in the startup industry. But I was never handing out business cards. I, I was, I could not be their lawyer because I was in house for a company. And that's kind of a nice way to get to know people because you, you're sort of rubbing shoulders as a, as an equal or as a mentor. Um, so when I when I first stepped back out into private practice, I was a little bit. Um, I was wearing multiple hats. I was still doing work for Coolfire, but also able to do work for other companies like Coolfire. And uh, Coolfire has a big footprint in town, and I was wanted to be, you know, conscientious about not just hanging my hat out as, you know, Coolfire's lawyer is available for you kind of thing. Um, but little by little, word got out, and and so there's a, a segment of my clientele that are smaller emerging production companies, filmmakers, digital content providers. Um, you know, Kent is a great example of the type of, of client that I think fits very well in, in that, that he's a, you know, creating videos, creating content for others. I and mean, there's a set of basic agreements that, that companies like that will run into all the time. And I essentially have built those better than probably anybody else in the area. So there's that group of clients. And that's really come largely by word of mouth. Then there are uh, the occasional referral from within the firm, and there's an element of that sort of cross-selling that we do and we're working on, and we're getting better and better at at Cape. It's a really conscientious group about that, and that's been helpful. Um, and then the last category is, is one that I don't have any experience with, but every once in a while we're starting to get more, and that's the simple you know, Google search. Somebody's looking for an entertainment lawyer or something to do with entertainment, and we pop up. Because there really isn't anybody else in town. There are other lawyers who, who have entertainment-related practices. But I don't think there's anybody else, certainly in this region, that is focusing on building that as a holistic practice. And so right now, those clients are kind of a, coming from a mix of places. What do you think you need to do better? I mean, is it is it getting clients? Is it getting clients in a different way? I mean, is it do you need to network more? Do you need to... You know, do videos. I mean, what like do you think it has to do with systems? Like, what what do you what do you think it is that you need to do better? Well, I, I, I and I I'm obviously been spending a lot of time on this, and the conference has been really helpful in focusing my thinking on it. I think that it boils down to two things. One, um, I, I I do think I'm pretty self aware, but I also like a lot of people have a blind spot, and I I do know that systems are not my sweet spot personally. And so one of the challenges that I've had in the last six months is, you know, I, on the one hand, I'm excited to be back in an environment where I have support, I've got good paralegal support and assistance and, and, and things like that. But I never worked in that environment as a transactional attorney. I worked in that environment as a litigator, which had a certain workflow and process. And I was just plugged in, never had to think about it. 
So part of my challenge is building out my support team for my practice within this firm. And I definitely have the people who are interested, but I've got to do the building of that practice because that practice doesn't exist in that firm. So even though I'm in a 30 lawyer farm, for all intents and purposes, I am running my own uh, firm or practice. Um, I need to get better at that so that I can spend more time out speaking. Um, and that would include video, I think. Experience, when I get the chance to speak publicly, I get clients. It's almost a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, not too long ago, I had an opportunity to speak at a, a lunch meeting for the American Marketing Association, you know, monthly lunch and learn. And, and I and I talk about copyrights and contracts and work for hire and just basic rules that govern the stream of content uh, that flows whenever any ever content is getting created, used by people, or uh, and so forth. Um, and that always leads to people walking up afterwards. And in, in this most recent experience, led to a really significant client that I don't think I would have had any other way to get access to. Um, so I know that I need to spend more time out doing that. But I, when I get the work in, I end up feeling like I've got to do it all myself. And then a week or two will go by and I haven't done any of the business development work. And then that work's done. And now I have this gap. And it's sort of this treadmill that I'm on um, where it's sort of chicken one month feathers the next kind of thing. And so for me, I think figuring out the right way to build my internal system so that I can focus on a regular and consistent basis and getting out um, there is uh, that that's my growth. That's my need. All right, Pete. So one thing is, I think you should, if you haven't already, you should read the E-Myth because that, that, that book is all about the internal conflict between the um, people who want to bring in the business and then actually having to do the work and how there's always a conflict between the two. So think about that. But I have a question for you. So um, I, I heard what you said about giving talks and you always get a one-to-one -one business. You, you always get a case out of a public speaking event. And I'm wondering, why isn't the screen lawyer on YouTube? I mean, I think that if, if that's true, if you're, if, because when I was giving talks, immigration talks at local universities, I would always be really thrilled to come back with one case. But when I shifted to YouTube, obviously that's much more scalable. You don't even have to leave your office. And I just think that it'd be somewhat ironic if the screen lawyer weren't uh, all <laughs> yeah no i well listen i the, the the answer to that is that's in the works um i'm fortunate to have a, a an excellent um marketing professional that that works with us at capes alex shank she she gets it and she's got the fortitude to, to try to do that with lawyers which is a you know a difficult challenge but she's been helping me build out the, uh, the the screen lawyer as an Instagram platform, as a social media platform, and um, we've got a schedule. I've actually got hanging in my office a, uh, a flowchart of topics for evergreen content and then uh, other rotating content that I'm in the process of starting to build. And part of that goal is to do just as you said, is do a YouTube channel. Um, you know, ask the entertainment lawyer type of questions. It's sort of the way I, I I like the model that you have, Jim, in the immigration area. And there are enough issues that pop up on a regular basis. I check my feeds every morning, and there's something that's that I could certainly spend 90 seconds talking about um, and putting that up. And I haven't started that yet, but that is definitely on the to do list. 
So, so I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper in this because my guess is you've been saying this is in the works for several months, and you haven't recorded one damn video. So, how be honest? How long has this been in quotes in the works? Uh, several months, January. Yeah. Okay. And I have recorded. I recorded one video. I recorded one video, and that was only to put that that the point of that was to put the tell you guys what I wanted to speak about next. That's literally the only video I've done. Why? Why? See, what you're doing is, is you, and everyone does this crap, and I don't, I don't understand it. You, you've got to plan this thing out, and you've got to do this, and you've got all these diagrams on your wall, and it's great, and it looks really cool, but you're not doing anything. So, like, will you, will you do me a favor? Okay, just, just when we get done with this, I want you to record a video just to talk about what you do and put it in the Facebook group. Will you do that? Yeah. We, we, okay, and so what? It, tell me this: What is the holdup? Why? And I, I know you're saying you want to plan it, but what is the real holdup? What is it? I don't know. I don't know if it's. Uh, that's a really good question um, because I can't come up with a good answer. I don't have a a reason that I, some part of it is it. It doesn't. I, to be honest, I think on a day-by-day basis, there always seems to be something that's slightly more important or feels like I've got to respond more quickly. Um, And maybe on some other level, you know, I talk a good game, but maybe I don't quite believe it uh, as much as I say, to be honest with you. Um, It's a a very fair question, Tyson, because it's one I, I battle with. All right, so so let me and sorry, Jim. I know you may have a question, but here's the thing: you know what you you know what you're doing. You you put some stuff together for me and Jim. It looks great. It's it's stuff that every lawyer should know about. Um, that they probably you and I had some conversations yesterday, and so a couple things came up about like my personal contract, things that should be in it that are not in it. I mean, there's little bitty things that you can shoot every single day. It doesn't have to be this pretty polished video. Just get them out there. And, and what you're saying about um, you know things come up, it's because your day's not planned out. Then I mean, you need to. You know, this is a very important thing. If you're the screen lawyer, Jim's exactly right. You need to be on the screen, and so you need to every single day have a 10-minute slot you know, carved out, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, how, however long you need every single day, and you shoot the video, find someone that can edit it. There, I, I, I talked about this at the conference. There, if, for people making excuses about video, it's bullshit because – there are a ton of people that shoot video in the group that can tell you where to go to for editing, for production, what cameras you need, what equipment you need. All you really need is your cell phone. And so find something that can edit it, shoot the video every single day, get it to them, and then have them publish it too. I mean it's really freaking simple once you start doing it. So just just start doing it, man. You, you're no, Enough of excuses. Okay, so will you commit now over the next 12 weeks, will you commit to doing 15 total videos? That's nothing. So just over one of one a week. Will you do that? Fifteen total videos over twelve weeks. Yes. All right, we've got a deal. Sorry, Jimmy. No, I listen. I this is what I need, Tyson. You are. Uh, I keep seeing people who comment on on your approach to dealing with them, and everyone is always appreciative. So yes, I will do that. Because you're right. I know I need to do it. I do know that. Um, but a week will go by and I'm like, ah, next week. 
So, all right, I'm going to make that commitment. And, I, and, I, and you can hold me to it. Fantastic. All right, Pete. So we've had a really good conversation. Unfortunately, we do. We've got to wrap it up. Before we do, I want to remind everyone to go to the Facebook group, get involved there. Um, my guess is there's a lot of lawyers in that group that need you, Pete. So um, I highly recommend that people reach out to Pete. He's, he knows what the hell he's doing. Trust me. He's done some work for us. It's he's really really good. Um, also, if you don't mind taking a couple minutes. Going to iTunes or wherever your podcast, give us a five-star review. It really does help make the difference. Jimmy, what's your hack of the week? All right. For my hack of the week, I want to recommend to all of our listeners to listen to or buy Dan Kennedy's newest edition of his Marketing to the Affluent. The introduction alone is worth the investment for the book. Uh, Dan Kennedy has intense opinions. He's very... uh, strong-willed, and I think he even likes Trump a little bit, but the opening par- opening chapter of the book details uh, everything you need to know about the current state of the economy. If you're not someone who follows the economic ups and downs of your own clients or your client base, you need to, and this book will give you a great primer on it, and then getting into how to market to the affluent themselves and how to target the affluent in your marketing, it's a very valuable book. I read the original and now he has an updated version to reflect current reality. I highly recommend it. Good hack, Jimmy. All right, Pete, so you know the routine. You've been listening for quite a while. You're friends with Jim. Um, you and I are becoming fast friends. What is your tip or hack of the week? My tip of the hack of the week is um, when you ha- – if you're a transactional attorney and you – or really any kind of attorney, but particularly in a transactional, if you don't – figure out a way to get your clients to tell you about their business without charging them, then you never have the opportunity to help them really see the forest for the trees. So if you get a chance to figure out whether it's a um, a short consult, um, I call it the design phase. Basically, you've got to have a deliverable the way a software company does, where you're getting in to understand the client and learn all about their business. So that when you, you can not only see what they need to handle right now, but you can spot the thing that might come down the road in the future. I love it. So it's funny. Um, my tip of the week actually has to do with something you'd mentioned earlier. And I think it's funny because you had no idea I was going to talk about it. You were talking about um, kind of sharpening the saw and um, really kind of learning all the time. And, and you talk, it was really early in the episode, but it's just about how right. you should – learn and get better and all that. So my tip of the week is it's summertime. We're in the middle of June. Things start to slow down for a lot of people in their practices over the summer. Um, some it speeds up, but some it, it slows down because it's vacation time. Take a little bit of time. Take a couple days and sharpen the saw. This is a really good opportunity to – I actually have a uh, – I borrowed a stack of um, recorded seminars from Mike Campbell that I'm going to work on over the next couple weeks. But just take a couple – I mean even if it's just reading a book on trial tactics or whatever you do, just take a couple a couple days just to sharpen the saw and, and preferably more over the summer. But take some time, sharpen the saw, get better at your craft so you're always improving. It's not just about improving on your business. Improve your legal skills too. It's really, really important. All right, Pete, so much for – thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Really, really appreciate it. Lots of good stuff. My pleasure, Tyson, Jim. Thanks a lot to both you guys. Appreciate what you guys have put together, and uh, I am really happy to be part of the team.
Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your host and to access more content, more content. go to MaximumLawyer.com. Maximum Have a great week and catch you next time.